News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, it is back to school, which means I'm sure our Raji Silhal is very, very busy and stressed out this week. Raji, how are you doing? <laughs> no stress. Just, uh, I'm one of these, I'm a summer girl. I love summer so much. Yes, I like fall, blah, blah, blah. Very pretty in Vancouver. But How dare you? Fall is the greatest so- season in Vancouver. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. The thing is, Simi, summer is, summer is associated with rest and relaxation and just fun. And I loved having the kids around more and not uh, committing them to the grueling school schedule that uh, they're about to embark upon. But I am so excited for them to see their friends again and all of that. And we did the first like back to school shopping thing together. And oh, by the way, school supplies cost a lot of money. Yes. Something I had forgot about. So it has been, it's been fun getting her ready for that. But my daughter, she's going into grade one and she just lost her sixth tooth tooth, and she is in... uh, Are you still paying her that unbelievably extortionate amount of money for the teeth that she loses that you did for the first time? No, that was the pandemic era. That was, uh, yeah, I'm embarrassed to say she got $100 for her first lost tooth, but that was because... Yeah, you should uh, not tell people that. You should not. No, 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 no. So she got a toonie and then she lost a tooth uh, the night before Labor Day, but Tooth Fairy, uh, just because it was Labor Day, she had a holiday. So she actually didn't put anything under the pillow that day. She has to wait another night for that. Um, so we, we've been enjoying our summers so much, but I'm excited for the kids to get back. And you know, one thing I've been thinking about is uh, cooking and baking different things for them this oh, year. Save it falls so good for that. Yeah, right. And I love baking, especially, but I'm one of these people who like, if I'm having something savory, it needs to be a savory treat. If I'm having something sweet, it's got to be a sweet treat. Never shall the two cross pollinate. So there's this new snack on the horizon and it's at McDonald's. It's a new treat. It's just coming down soon. And it's the cheese Danish, but it's not totally new to me because they had it apparently 30 years ago. Oh, I have served it in the 80s. I have very fond memories of the McDonald's cheese Danish from back so in the day. It. Yes, I did eat it back in high school. Like I remember it back in high school. It was delicious. Okay. And I don't know this about you, but I feel like it's going to be a make or break situation in terms of our friendship. How do you believe <laughs> <laughs> or how do you... Tell me how you It's sweet feel. though. See, this is the thing. I think you're confusing the word cheese and thinking that what, like cheddar on a Danish? It is not. It is a sweet cheese Danish. It's like cream cheese, cheese or, uh, you know, it's something like that, like a, like a cheesecake. Like, do you get confused with cheesecake? No, that is a sweet treat. That's what this is like. It is, if it's as good as I remember, and I'm probably, you know, remembering it very, probably a little too fondly, but it was delicious back in the day. Okay, so yeah, cheesecake can be a challenge for me because just even the word alone, I go, cheese, oh, hold up. You need to be in a different dish entirely. How do you feel about pumpkin spice? I am not a coffee drinker, so pumpkin spice, like lattes, all of that doesn't work for me. However, I love like pumpkin pie, pumpkin cake, pumpkin, like you name it. I'll eat all that, no problem. Okay, okay. So I feel like you are going to be camp cheese danish. Oh, I'm definitely pro camp cheese Danish. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You need to try one, Raji. I feel like this is just because you have this mental hurdle in your mind that you need to get over about the cheese. Like it's not like we're Gordon McDonald, right? Like Gordon McDonald and I have this argument all the time, usually right around this time of year because Thanksgiving is coming up. He loves (sighs) cheddar cheese and apple pie. The Gord. What? No. Yes. And, but this is some people love it. Raji, it's true. Some people love cheddar cheese and apple pie. Gord McDonald is one of them. And in fact, when we used to have like pie day here, this is pre-pandemic, and we'd all bring in pies, Gord was the apple pie with the cheddar cheese person, always trying to get other people to try it. I myself cannot wrap my head around that, but I know, and yes, people feel free to email me, simi at cknw.com. There are a lot of people that are very pro cheddar, cheddar cheese, apple pie camp people. I don't understand that at all. That's re- that's really blowing my mind right now. I can throw a scoop of uh, vanilla ice cream on any pie. No, that's, even, that doesn't count. 
Not Even say. pumpkin pie. Is that at all controversial? No, it's not. Of course, pie and ice cream, they go together. <laughs> I just, I remember the first time I ever saw, like, I think I saw a TV commercial or something and I was like 11, 12 years old. I saw a TV commercial where they were eating pie with a slice of cheddar cheese. And in my head, I thought, what is this craziness that I am seeing on television? Who does that? It's just not something I grew up with, but... I'll tell you, people will email me. They will. There are people out there who love cheddar cheese and apple pie. Each to his own, to each his own. I guess. I guess. But the yeah. cheese danish is something completely different. This is a sweet treat. Raji, trust me on this one. It is delicious. Yeah, with cream cheese in it. I don't know. I don't know. But I want to wrap my head around it because I want to, I myself want to get a little bit more adventurous with treats this fall and what I try to bake. I'm going to try to add some new things to the roster. This is also not going to sound super fun to you, but I have been experimenting with how little sugar I can put in my baked treats. And I had a major fail on the weekend where I tried to make some, uh, they're called power muffins. And I was like, you know what? got a ripe banana in here let's not put any sugar in and see what happens they were horrible Cindy. <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely needed a little bit of sugar i think that for a lot of baking you can absolutely reduce the sugar most often by a third without noticing anything but then yeah. then it starts to get a little questionable like uh, like then you're going to start to notice some differences for sure and my four-year-old asked me mama are these supposed to be sweet <laughs> We're like, did you miss something? <laughs> That's a polite way of saying. Did you make a mistake? <laughs> okay. So what we have then goals for the fall, for back to school, for Raji getting back into baking, is that you are going to be a little bit more adventurous with your baking. And we're going to add some um, cheesy, some cheese things for you to add, like a cheesecake 100%. perhaps in there. Yeah, 100%. I'm cheesecake do bars. Why don't you make some cheesecake bars? Wow. Woo. Even that's hard for me to swallow as an idea. But yes, I want to do it. I want to try out these things for sure. I'm going to try some cheese desserts. Okay, I'm going to send you some recipes. We'll see how that goes. Thank you for that, Raji. (laughs) Thanks, Simi. So Raji Sohal there. I know there's people that go ahead, email me. How good is cheddar cheese and apple pie? Raji and I are not on that team, but I'm sure there are people out there who love the combination. So let's hear it. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. The search continues this morning for the suspect and the mass stabbing in Saskatchewan. Let's find out how that area is dealing with what's going on there. Tom Vernon joins us now with Global News Saskatchewan. Tom, thanks for being here. Hey, thank you for having me. So what? where are you located right now? So I'm in Weldon, Saskatchewan. It is the location of one of the scenes of the from the stabbings on uh, Sunday morning. It is located close to the James Smith Cree Nation where a number of other scenes were um, obviously, 11 in total have uh, passed away from this, as well as 19 injured, 13 different crime scenes, RCP say. What are you hearing from the community there? They, they must be in shock. Well, yeah, and it's uh, adding to it, it's the first day of school in Saskatchewan. So there's obviously concern about that. And uh, at least one school division has announced that schools will be in a hold and secure uh, pattern. In Regina, where the suspects were last, or at least one of the suspects was last spotted on Sunday morning, uh, the police chief there, Evan Bray, says, look, the, the kids are going back to school today. Parents should obviously keep an eye out, but uh, should feel secure in, in knowing that the police have a heavy presence there. And he also added that, uh, it, you know, look, there hasn't been any uh, violence related to this since Sunday. So they are trying to put out a calming presence uh, as well as ensuring kids are safe as they go back to school. So what do we know right now about the manhunt? Yeah, so there was one of the suspects was actually found dead yesterday, that being Damien Sanderson. He was wanted on one count of first-degree murder. His body was found outside a home on the James Smith cremation. They say his his wounds were not self-inflicted. They're not releasing his manner of death, but they say uh, it was not self-inflicted. And they added that Miles Sanderson, a man who is still at large, wanted in uh, in this series of stabbings, uh, they believe he is injured. They did not give any indication why that would be. So they believe that he may be out there seeking medical attention as well. So uh, status of the manhunt is they're, they're still looking for Miles Sanderson. Uh, he is wanted on three counts of first-degree murder as well as a number of other charges. Okay, but what about that last report of the sighting on Sunday afternoon? That was in Regina. Do they still believe that that is the last location he was seen? Yeah, so the Regina Police Chief did address that. He says they, they believe that is a credible tip. Now, they're not, they don't believe that, uh, they now don't believe that Damien was with Miles, but they do believe that Miles Sanderson was in Regina 
after that uh, spotting, they say through other investigative methods that they were able to they were able to confirm that sighting. So they're actually well, he admits that that is old information. They are still operating under the belief that he is in Regina and acting as if he is still there, conducting the manhunt and conducting the investigation. Uh, now that said, RCMP and police are, are searching a number of locations throughout the province. As you know, the, the alerts has also been extended to Alberta and Manitoba. So there are a number of locations that they're using surveillance and investigative techniques to try and find Miles Sanderson, not just in Regina, but outside as well. Right. Now, Tom, I know we're learning more about the victims in this case, too. What do we know about them? Is there any connection between them at this point? So I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. Uh, I've not been able to confirm any connections or the names of any of the victims myself. What we do know is police have said that uh, some of the victims appear to have been targeted. Some appear to have been random. Uh, in total, 11 have died, including one of the suspects, and uh, 19 others have been injured. So do they believe that the, the hunt continues within Saskatchewan at this point? Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's what the RSP were saying yesterday. They're using everything they can, aerial uh, surveillance, looking for miles. Um, but as I mentioned, the, the alert has been extended into BC and, or it's not BC, sorry, into uh, Manitoba and Alberta. Um, so obviously police are on the lookout in, in those prairie provinces as well. Um, but as, as far as we know, the majority of the manhunt is continuing and a lot of resources are being deployed in Saskatchewan in an attempt to find Miles Anderson. All right, Tom, thank you so much for that update this morning. No problem. We appreciate that. That's Tom Vernon with Global News Saskatchewan and the update on the search for Miles Sanderson at this point as the manhunt continues there. And there are a lot of questions, as we've heard, too, about the Parole Board of Canada. Because it turns out that back on February the 1st, there was a Parole Board of Canada decision that said Miles Sanderson would not quote, present an undue risk and freeing him would, quote, contribute to the protection of society by actually facilitating his reintegration. Yes, you can imagine that brings up a lot of questions about why did they think that, uh, what what led them to that decision, and what kind of the consequences are there for getting something so incredibly wrong at that point. The report actually went on to say the board is satisfied that your risk is manageable in the community if you live with and maintain your society and employment and continue with developing supports, including getting therapy. So what happened? What changed there? Those are just among the many questions that are being asked in this particular case. Now, as Gord mentioned earlier, Prime Minister Trudeau is here in Vancouver today. There's a cabinet retreat going on, but he will be making an appearance uh, at a housing announcement where I'm sure there will be questions about this. So keep it tuned in here for the very latest on that today. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the rest of us were, you know, enjoying vacations, just relaxing this summer. Our next guest was practicing, 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 but clearly it has paid off. Annalise Lam is 17 years old from Nanaimo, and guess what? She just became a world champion in Highland dancing after being crowned the overall winner in the junior division of the competition that was going on in Danoon, Scotland. We have managed to track Annalise down, and she joins us now. Good morning. Morning. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Annalise, when did you start Highland Dancing? When did you decide, hey, I love this? Um, so I started Highland Dancing when I was in kindergarten because my sister did it, and she was one of my biggest idols. And then I just fell in love with it from there. <laughs> How often do you do this? Like, what is your practice schedule like? Um, I dance twice a week in the studio with my teacher, and then I practice at home in between. Okay, Annalise, you must really love it. Yeah, I do. It's my biggest passion. Okay, what is it about that? Because it's so active. When I watch people do Highland dancing, I think that looks exhausting. Yeah, <laughs> It's definitely a lot of work. You've got to be really strong and have good endurance. Um, I just really love that it's so um, beautiful to watch and just the strength you need to perform. Yeah. It's really cool. And then it's combined with all the traditions of Scotland. It's amazing. Now tell me about the competition in Scotland. Was this your first time going and what was it like? Yeah, so it was my first time in Scotland, first time competing over there. Um, it was really amazing to be there. Like, it's a dream of all, not all Highland dancers, but a lot of Highland dancers to go to this cowl competition. So I had watched so many videos and just dreamed about what it would be like. 
And then I got there, I was like, oh my gosh, it's actually real. That's the stadium where all these amazing dancers have been, and I'm here. It was crazy. That sounds amazing. So you competed in a, in a bunch of different categories, right? Like, um, how does it work? How does the competition work? So there's two days of competitions for the World Championships. And the first day is the qualifying day. So there's two heats with um, the 16s and 17-year-olds divided into half. So there's um, it's by your championship record for the year. So any combination of dancers, that gives it an equal quality. And then the top, you do a championship, and the top 10 dancers from each heat, heat A and B, um, qualify for the finals. And then the finals are two days later, and then you do another championship, and then that's the world finals, so whoever comes out on top is the winner. And that was you, Annalise. How, did, <laughs> how many people were there, and you came out on top? That's amazing. Um, I'm not sure how many people there were in my heat, but there's 20 in the final. Okay, so can you tell me, explain to me, what are the elements of Highland dancing? Like, what what do you have to have in your dance that you perform? What are the what are the different moves? Um, so there's different movements. Like, there's main movements for each of the four dances. So in the Highland fling, it would be like a shedding movement, which is like um, <laughs> hard to describe. Um, just talking, but there's like a point to the side with your foot, and then there's, like, um, a rubbing action around your leg. And then in the sword dance, it's pretty iconic. Um, There's these movements called patty buzz, and you, like, jump with an extension to the side, and then you, like, rub (laughs) your foot on the half point against your other one. Yeah. (laughs) That's a lot of stuff to remember that you have to do. Annalisa, what happens now for you? Are you going to go back next year? Are you just going to keep competing? Um, to be honest, I haven't really thought of the future because it's just been so exciting and overwhelming with all the support I've received from this accomplishment. So we'll definitely see what happens next. Well, listen, congratulations, and we're so glad you could join us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, keep up the good work. That's Annalise Lamb. She is the winner, the world champion of the 2022 Junior Highland Dance World Championships. You should check her out online. It's amazing when you watch their dancing in action. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, that bell really brings back memories, doesn't it? It's so Pavlovian. For so many kids, that's the sound they are going to be hearing now. They've had their couple of months of summer vacation. Time to head back to school. Not also a stress-free time. Let's put it that way. Not just for parents, but for students and for teachers, especially with all this discussion about COVID-19 and to mask or not to mask. So we thought we'd check in and see how parents are feeling. Our Raji Sohal is with us now for more on that. Hi. Hi, Simi. Yeah, I talk to a lot of parents. I talk to parents and kids, uh, parents of preschoolers, uh, elementary and high school kids. Of course, a lot of kids were nervous about summer coming to an end, nervous about uh, trying to make friends, uh, worried about who their teachers will be. Many kids told me they're still worried about homework. And as it turns out, Simi, math is still seemingly the most hated class (laughs) for kids. And parents were overwhelmingly in favor of an as normal as possible school year. Every parent I talked to said that the pandemic had a really negative impact on their kid and that the parents even feel guilty for what they say was cheating their kids out of normal socializing for a couple of years. Um, And, you know, when we were ordered to to find our bubble uh, in the pandemic, most families followed that guidance to a T. So that meant a limited play dates and hanging with friends and in many cases, no birthday parties. Uh, so that meant that people's kids had a very limited couple of years there in terms of their socialization. And those early years, that is what school is about. It is not about math and science when you're really little. It is about just making friends and learning exactly. how to be with others. So I, I talked also to folks about masking because we know there is no mask mandate for back to school. What it is instead is mask optional. And very interestingly, I talked to a lot of kids that said 
that's fine. Like I'm going to wear a mask. And that was kids from kindergarten straight through to grade 12. And then for other kids, it was a really big no. And I found that parents were also like that, that it was either yes or, or no. And here are some of the other comments that I uh, got out of parents that I talked to. Yeah, I have a nine-year-old daughter. She's uh, going into grade four. And uh, I think we're feeling okay with her going back to school this year. I think she's, she's pretty good at socially distancing and wearing a mask, even if uh, the restrictions aren't, aren't in place. You know, if, if there are kind of outbreaks at school that, uh, you know, we'll be able to keep the kids at home and we'll do what we can. I think we just have to adapt and move on because it's been going on for how many years now? And, you know, if we don't really just, you know, take it as it goes, I don't know if we're going to ever get back to normal. And what do you think about the last two years of their education? Has it left an effect or an impact on them, all the pandemic stuff? I think so in some ways because of the pandemic, we kind of okay with them, you know, staying at home and not pushing in terms of their education. And I think the next few years, we kind of have to sort of, you know, start picking up where we left off. With their friends and socializing, uh, social life, I think, has been pretty hard. Uh, not being able to, you know, have the birthday parties and have, you know, friends over. And especially at that young age, so socialization is quite important. It's an important part of school. And not quite the same on Zoom uh, than, than if you were in person. Uh, and I think in terms of their schooling, you know, I, I can really see my daughter struggling with, with reading and with, uh, you know, math and kind of the, some of the basics. And I think just, you know, being at home and being with us and we're working all day, we don't have the time to spend like she would have had with, uh, with her peers and with her teacher in the classroom. So I think it does have a lasting impact that we're gonna have to work towards trying to, to fill that in over time. Uh, we're at the point now where if you wanted to get vaccinated, you could have should have by now. And if you want to wear a mask, go for it. If you don't, you know, I don't think we should be making people. Yeah. Um, work, you know, working in a preschool, you're subjected to all kinds of colds and sicknesses all the time. So, you know, wearing a mask when the kids are all sick might be a benefit. But I also hate having something on my face, too. So, <laughs> you know, I think you leave it up to people, you know. You're sick of being sick. Maybe a mask seems like a good idea get tired of wearing a mask and you know maybe a cold doesn't seem that horrible after you've been wearing it for too long and it's driving you nuts too right so either way um but yeah no the kids are sick all the time at preschool it's just the way it goes so what are you gonna do <laughs> i'm super pumped to uh bring my daughter to grade one especially as the summer kind of passes we move into the first real semester that is kind of quote-unquote post-pandemic so very excited to kind of get back to normal have them you know play with their friends kind of get back to a normal routine and kind of get on with normal everyday life so very excited about it looking forward to it and how about vaccines and mandates and in fact there won't be a mask mandate how are you feeling about safety um I think everyone has to do their part, but for the most part, from my perspective, we've done the vaccines, we've done the masks. Um, I think at some point you have to kind of figure out, like, we have to return to normal at some point. Um, so I'm really interested, you know, to each their own, um, but I'm kind of at the point where I'm ready to go back to normal almost as a point because I think it's important that the, the medical, physical health implications are one thing, but we're moving into more of a, we got to get back to societal norms where people have their mental health and their interactions. That's how we're built. That's how I'm kind of look we get back to. You know, Raji, that last person there that you talked to makes some excellent points because I think that is what has affected a lot of people's attitude towards COVID-19 now. It's not that we don't take it seriously and all of that. It's that we understand all of the other consequences of our behaviors and people are very concerned about the impact of that. Yeah. And he's not being cavalier and, and the parents not that at I all. talked to were saying, you know, we've done our part. We have all gotten the jab. We've had our kids get the jab. So they're being responsible. Um, but the, this point about the psychological consequences for children of having everything so disrupted for so long, we don't even know the impact yet of that. It might take a couple of years for us to understand what they missed out on. But one thing that was really interesting that almost every parent I talked to missed 
mentioned, was disappointment with the province. Uh, a lot of claims that uh, the province hasn't been transparent enough going into school, not enough messaging, kind of absent in that way. Um, and then disappointment that there hasn't been much allocated in the way of resources to better ventilation in classrooms. So, okay, masks are optional. That's fine. Kids can wear them if they want or not. But our entire society was put on pause for two years, right? Like our economy was totally stalled. The very least they could do is install some excellent ventilation into each and every single classroom in BC. And if they're not going to do that, then they should be transparent about what their excuse is. It cannot be budget at this point. We put everything on hold for two years, absolutely everything. I think the provincial government needs to step up, do their part, and improve the ventilation in the classrooms, because it's not just about COVID, right? Or cold and flu. It's about whatever else down the line might arise in terms of sickness. We're sending our kids to school. So let's just make it as safe as we can with better ventilation. Right. And the ventilation thing helps on all of that. Helps with cold and flu too. It just helps uh, overall, especially with older schools, right? We know how stuffy it can get in some of those classrooms. So better ventilation is just a good idea overall. And I think parents are also quite concerned about making sure their kids get back on track in terms of that social setting, social behaviors, because we've seen what kind of an impact it can have. Teachers are telling us this all the time, right? That they've seen a difference in their students and not for the better. Yeah, for sure. And also, we don't want kids to have first and foremost on their minds COVID. We don't. We want them to think about other things first and foremost. And so many children have been talking about the coronavirus and COVID-19 for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, in some cases, like some kids are, you know, being overly hygienic. That's not great either. Um, So I think this return to normal for a lot of people will be very welcome. And Simi, although I, I, I talked to tons of folks, I tried to get some opinion from someone who would say, I think masks need to be mandated. And I couldn't find anyone. And of course, I do want to point out that one of the reasons I may not have been able to find anyone in the various settings I went to is because maybe those people didn't even feel safe enough to go out because perhaps they're immunocompromised. So I just do want to mention that because there are people for whom the mask is not optional. They absolutely have to wear it because of a health condition. Again, this is just one more thing for parents to be concerned about, right? As the school year ramps up again. Raji, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Simi. It's our Raji Sohal there talking about back to school. And it's also worth a reminder here, too, with all of these other things. And you're thinking, well, I don't have kids going back to school. Do you know what that means, though? You need to slow down. Uh, Police definitely reminding people, and we do this every year uh, this week, reminding people that the school zones are in effect. So slow down. If you are driving through a school zone, uh, police are going to be out enforcing that at least this week, usually for the entire month of September that they're doing that. So it is a good time to remember that, you know what, you may not have kids that are going back to school, but it's still going to impact you. So obey those school zones for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we've heard a lot about police wearing body-worn cameras, right? But a lot of what we read and hear about actually comes from the United States. Here in Canada, law enforcement agencies are still, in 2022, in the process of developing policies or testing out the use of body-worn cameras on officers. The Vancouver Police Department is undergoing testing with them in a pilot project right now. The RCMP is in the process of rolling out about 10,000 body-worn cameras across the country, but this is not going to happen overnight. And now the Delta Police Department also working through a two-year pilot project and is phasing in body-worn cameras too. So let's talk about how that's been going. Joining us now is James Sandberg, Acting Inspector and Public Affairs Manager for the Delta Police Department. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Uh, Thank you for having me. So tell me about how it got to this point with the Delta Police Department and body-worn cameras. Where is the department at with this? Sure. So... In in 2020, we started uh, a review process for our, call it our strategic planning. We call it our community safety and well-being plan. Uh, And one of the steps that we took at that point in time was actually reaching out to our community and seeing if body-worn camera use would be supported. And at that point in time, uh, the response was overwhelmingly uh, yes, uh, we would like to see it. So uh, we started uh, in 2020. Um, in December of 2020, we uh, authorized use of the of the um, body worn cameras for spontaneous events or 
um, spontaneous events that involve civil disobedience or breach of the peace or violence. Um, so don't think of these as like the uh, a peaceful protest, but more so where there's property damage or other kind of um, breach uh, offenses going on in a in a kind of a uh, protest environment. Um, in May of 2021, we expanded that uh, to include uh, our interdiction team. Uh, May of 2021, we also saw um, in the Lower Mainland an increase in gang violence. So that interdiction team, was pr its primary focus was gang violence and gang violence pr uh, prevention. So we deployed it into that team. In September of 2021, we expanded that. We made the interdiction team use, uh, they gained permanent authorization, but we also expanded it into use by our traffic section. Um, and then uh, fast forward to June of 2022, just a couple of months ago, we saw permanent authorization granted for our traffic section. So now where we're at is today having this conversation, we're looking uh, at expanding uh, the program into a patrol setting with the addition of four or five more cameras. Okay, so what are, what are officers saying about this, James? Like, how do they feel about using these cameras? Um, well, anecdotally, uh, when the cameras first uh, first were introduced, I mean, this is change, right? And yeah. so change is a little bit, uh, uh, you know, some people are good with it and some are not. And so there was some trepidation for sure. However, what we're seeing now is those officers that are authorized for the use of the cameras is uh, their their use of the camera has, has uh, increased and they're gaining confidence in it. Um, you know, in the in the United States, uh, we saw when cameras were first introduced there, um, officers uh, weren't sure if they were going to like it or not. And fast forward to 2022, and you have some of those very same officers that won't deploy now without the camera. Right. Okay. So that's what I was wondering about, because it feels like in the United States, they, they're much further along than this. So is that a, a just a change issue, do you think, difficult to overcome that? Um, I think it's a change issue, but I also think that it's a landscape issue. And what I mean by that is here, uh, our accountability structure, uh, our, our civilian oversight is is far different than what uh, is available in, in the United States. So I think really we have to be careful because we're comparing apples to oranges. Right. Okay. So you're hearing the public likes it and now you're hearing that officers actually like it too. So can you foresee a time when this is just standard practice? Uh, I think we're getting there and it will take a little bit longer. I don't think that it's going to be uh, like a, a, a f the flip of a switch overnight. We will see um, some like the steps that we're taking. We're, we're taking slow steps to expand it carefully and we're going back and asking the public, uh, you know, for further, further input. And that's kind of the drive for what uh, we put out this uh, last week in terms of, of our release. We're seeking uh, that public input. And so far uh, since that relief we, uh, release, we've had a small number of responses. But what I'm excited to say is the responses that we have had have been 100% supportive. Okay, so that's that's so interesting then. So could you see this happening? It's going to become standard practice for just law enforcement in Canada? I think so. Uh, what we need to do is, uh, is is be careful how we deploy it and really consider the, the balance of, of the need or the benefits of the camera with, with the privacy rights of the individuals. Uh, and I think that's kind of the, the crux of the whole debate here is making sure that we're doing it in a respectful and appropriate manner. Right. And so what about the transparency issues here, James? For instance, if there is, you mentioned traffic you know, and somebody is contesting why they were pulled over, what kind of access, public access, will there be to that that information? So, well, okay, so when we do our disclosure, uh, our disclosure is guided by, uh, uh, you know, it, it, the, the agreement that we have with Crown is, uh, is a, a pretty long uh, memorandum of understanding for disclosure. So uh, that video would be disclosed in uh, in advance to the person that uh, is challenging as long as the, it's going to be used for uh, a court purpose. Um, and then in addition to that, what I will say is anybody that believes that they were captured on camera, uh, and if it's not a court process, they have uh, opportunities to request it through uh, the Freedom of Information and Privacy Act. I think what you've just illustrated, though, is the challenge, right? The challenge of making sure that people can protect their privacy in some way, too. 
Certainly. So the one thing that I'll say in our policy is that when our officers are recording, uh, they're not doing it covertly, it's overtly, and they're also advising the person that the body-worn camera's been activated. So the person knows in advance right then and there, and that's, that's right in our policy. Right. So right now, it sounds like the Delta Police Department has about, what, 16 of these cameras available? Correct. We have 16. Okay. So then how, how many do you foresee in the next couple of years? Uh, What, uh, you know, step by step, what I see is uh, if we go ahead with expansion into our patrol setting, we would add an additional four to five at uh, at the onset. Right. Uh, I I don't I can't predict uh, going forward from there. I mean, they're costly as well. And we're balancing those costs as well. It is a fascinating process. James, thank you for talking to us about it this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thank you. I encourage uh, people to uh, provide their feedback to the Delta Police Department. Uh, and if they're looking for where and how to do that, that's through uh, uh, BWC at deltapolice.ca. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's James Sandberg, Acting Inspector and Public Affairs Manager for the Delta Police Department. They are working their way through developing a body-worn camera program for their officers, as you heard him explain there. And I'm wondering, is this something that you think should be standard? Canada is much slower to adopt this than the United States has been. Uh, different law enforcement agencies are, are getting through this process right now. As I mentioned earlier, the Vancouver Police Department is in the middle of a pilot project, but they only started it about a year and a half ago or so. Uh, you've got the RCMP rolling out body-worn cameras, but again, this is in 2022. This is Mornings with Simi. Everyone's personal budget is tough and tight these days. And if you're a renter, you're probably worried about being hit with a rent increase next year. The reason? Landlords and tenants still don't know what the allowable rent increase is going to be. And of course, inflation plays into this, but they've been waiting on a decision from the provincial government and the deadline is fast approaching. Well, joining us now is David Hutniak, the Chief Executive Officer of Landlord BC. Good morning, David. Good morning, Simi. So how are landlords feeling about this too? Because it feels like they would want to know what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we know the province has been doing some policy work, as, as they call it, on this issue. And, and uh, uh, you know, that's fair enough. Uh, they have also announced that they're definitely not going to be allowing the full CPI increase. So, that, so that's been confirmed uh, through, through the media. But... Uh, you know, January first is a is a really big month for uh, for renewals uh, across the sector, and you need to give ninety days notice. So that means uh, before or on or before October first, uh, these notifications need to go out. So logistically, there's huge issues, and you know, but more importantly, the broader concern is that you know the the level of increase that uh, is going to be permitted. Um, even even the formula increase at 5.3% uh, is is inadequate, frankly, for our sector uh, because of the past impacts of uh, COVID, et cetera. So it's, it's very concerning. Yeah, let's talk about that. Why the big rent increase? It used to be tied to the rate of inflation, a couple of percent every year. Obviously, with everything that's happened in the past year, that kind of went out the window. So what are landlords looking for here? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, back in 2018, it was 2% plus CPI. That formula had been in existence for a long time, and then it was cut back to CPI. I guess from our perspective, you know, the and, and we've communicated this to to the government, uh, to both our previous housing minister, E.B., and and, uh, and again now to, to interim uh, minister Rankin, that, you know, from our perspective, okay, if that's the formula – in the RTA, then, then let's just let's use that, and in that way, at least there's consistency. It's inadequacy is a you know a whole other discussion, but at least you know if we know year year in and year out, we can do the calculation based on what's in the act, and you can budget for it. Uh, you know you can you can project what sort of work you might be able to do on your uh, on your buildings, and, and it's also extremely helpful and important. For you know anybody contemplating building new rental in British Columbia, you know they've got lenders that they are accountable to and pro formas that they have to work through. And this uncertainty around, you know, whether or not uh, we're going to see the the allowable maximum year in year out is you know is just really not terribly helpful. What has happened with landlords then in the past year, David? I know that there's a lot of confusion, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic. But what's going on now? 
Well, yeah, the pandemic, I mean, certainly, you know, we, our sector very much, uh, you know, collaborated, co- collaborated, pardon me, with the province on on the uh, eviction moratorium. We obviously needed to keep everybody housed. Um, certainly, you know, the rent increase freeze in 2020, you know, that was largely accepted. We were unhappy that it extended to 2021 and then, in 2022, we saw a 1.5 increase, which was the formula increase in the in the Residential Tenancy Act. In the meantime, you know, just like everybody in British Columbia, our expenses are going through the roof. Because, you know, we're hugely impacted by inflation. So, so really, you know, the reality, uh, Simi, is that you know, the whole rental housing ecosystem, as we refer to it, is is really really challenged right now, and and unfortunately. You know what we're seeing more and more of is that sort of there's an underlying dynamic of you know pitting uh, renters against landlords and uh, and and you know from our perspective um, you know something has to give here and and, and the, the way we look at it is that government has to create that give and and what I mean by that just very quickly is that you know we appreciate there's huge challenges for government to sort of bridge the worlds and needs of renters and, and landlords but uh, but it needs to happen we need some actual workable solutions to help both parties and you know what we're seeing and, and I know you follow housing really closely it, it, we see all levels of government advancing what they consider you know help for renters well, at the same time, what they're doing is ignoring the fact that they are harming the folks who provide this rental housing. And so it's, it's uh, you know, if they want positive results in terms of continued investment in existing stock and building new rental, you know, they just can't place the the, the, the burden of the rental crisis solely on, on our sector. So it's it's really challenging times, and, and we're not unsympathetic to – to the plight of, of renters, but you know the whole ecosystem right now is is really challenged. So, is there investment being made in building new rental? Like, are landlords saying, "Yeah, I'm going to go into this business"? Well, just quite the opposite, unfortunately. And there's a, a, a couple of different influences here. Certainly, you know, a lot of the our sector is largely you know small mom and pops and secondary market landlords. Uh, the, the the mom and pops are folks who may ha- may have one or two rental buildings. They're they're exiting the the sector. Uh, it's just there's you know you can't work in a negative cash flow environment year after year. Uh, it's just not sustainable for any business. So so we're seeing uh, an exodus for those folks. Uh, secondary market. Many folks have basements. So we say need that uh, that uh, income, frankly, to maintain their own housing. So they're really challenged. But on the new on the new construction, absolutely, there's just a lot of uncertainty. And then it's really all compounded right now by increasing interest rates. The the building rental is tough at the best of times, and now with high interest rates, you know, it's very much stalled. And uh, which is really, you know, hugely concerning. Uh, we have a supply problem that is the crux of the problem here. We have people, uh, you know, migrating to uh, to Vancouver and the Lower Mainland of BC. Period. Uh, in in Vancouver, 76% of all new residents are renters, and and they have no place to live. So it's it's a yeah. very challenging situation. It really is, David. Thank you for your time on that today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Sammy. Take care. You too. That's David Hutniak, CEO of Landlord BC. Landlords, renters alike are waiting for a decision from the provincial government on what the allowable rent increase will be for 2023. They've all got a deadline coming up because three months notice has to be given and they want to do it for January 1st, so October 1st, and still no word on when that might happen from the provincial government. I know you'll want to weigh in anytime we talk renters, landlords, housing. Of course you want to weigh in. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the Pacific National Exhibition is in the books for another year after that traditional last day on Labor Day, of course. Now, the numbers show that more than 529,000 people went to this 112th edition of the fair. That's about 75% of pre-COVID numbers. Peony has a lot of history, of course. Things like 45 years of Superdogs, which is amazing. 88 years of giving away the Peony Prize Home. But what about the stuff that you remember from your childhood that might not be there anymore? Ah, for that, we turn to Eve Lazarus, reporter, author, historian, host of Cold Case Canada. She's been writing about that this summer. Hi, Eve. Thanks for being here. 
nice, Simi. Thanks for having me. I love your posts about things that used to be at the Peony that we don't have anymore because, boy, did that bring back memories. And it sounds like a lot of people had the same reaction. It's had such a huge connection from people. It's been really interesting to, to look at them, and I've had so much fun putting them out. <laughs> How did you find out about some of this stuff? Well, some of it, you know, I remember when I got here in the 80s, you know, I'm thinking of the Challenger map and the Sky Glider and even some of that, the freak shows, not as bad as they were in the 40s and 50s, but there were still, you know, sort of remnants of that around. So that kind of, you know, I started doing this for, for my book, Vancouver Exposed, and just, you know, asking where things went, like the Sky Glider, where did it end up? And it turns out it's on Mount Seymour as their chairlift. I mean, that just blew me away. Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I remember the Sky Glider, which yeah. was that thing that you got on that took you across the top of the p and it was so cool. It went where? It went to Mount Seymour. It's called the Brockton Chair now. It's been there since 1988. It's I was the... shocked when I heard that. Me too. It's the same one? It is the same one. And it was at the P&E for about 15 years, you know, from about 70. And I must have taken it just at the end, around 1985. I remember this vividly from my childhood. Mm. Okay, so that's a fun fact. That is now at the P&E, or up at the uh, Mount Seymour. But now I watched the movie Elvis on the weekend, Eve. And as I was reading about Elvis, it really struck me, and I did not know this, that he only ever performed three times outside of the United States. One of them was here in Vancouver. Wasn't that amazing? And even more amazing, tickets for that concert were $3.75. Can you imagine? <laughs> I cannot. And that was at the PE. That was at Empire Stadium at the PE. Yeah, August 31st, 1957. That's amazing. That's <laughs> another little bit of history that we don't often hear about. So tell me about some of the exhibits that are no longer there, too, because there are some unusual ones. Well, I clearly remember the Challenger map in the, oh God, it must have been the late 80s, I guess, going to see that. Yeah. Do you remember that? I it do, vividly. In, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, it was in the old um, BC Pavilion, and it was just huge. And I, I kind of, you know, wanted to see how huge. And it was 196 panels. And um, I think that worked out to about 500, oh, just, just a massive, massive panel, you know, thing that was all done to scale. It took George Challenger and his family, something like seven years to build this map to scale, all from fir plywood. And then they cut it into 986,000 pieces. So that was all displayed at the, the PE for 43 years. And then when the BC Pavilion was demolished in 97, the, the Challenger map just disappeared. So I wanted to know where it went. And it, it turned out it's been in storage in an Air Canada hangar out at the airport for, you know, decades. And in 2010, for the Olympics, the RCMP apparently got um, nine of the 196 panels out of storage, just re refurbished them all and, and had them in their security office in Richmond to, to show people, which is really interesting. And they're the nine panels that were at the P&E last year, I think, for the first time, and back there this year. But it's just, it's less than 5% of the entire map that's, you know, was on display. I, oh, I would love to see that back on display too. Oh, but me too. What a huge undertaking that would be. So that's kind of some of the fun stuff. But Eva, I was reading through some of your posts on this. And some of these exhibits in years past were kind of gruesome too, weren't they? Like there was actually an exhibit that you wrote about involved the babes in the woods. Oh, yeah. They um, they used to have the, the actual skulls on display at the p and I think that went on for about 10 years. And they were taken from the Vancouver Police Museum. They'd been there in, I guess, when it opened in 1986 and then went to the P&E and back at the, the museum and they finally finally took them down in the 90s and uh, made replicas. But, yeah. Doesn't that just blow your mind like that? When I read about that, I thought, you're telling me, like, yes, it was an unsolved mystery and it was hugely mysterious, but to put the skulls on display, like, I can't yeah. believe we were doing that. Well, you know, things like Freak Auditorium. I mean, you know, you look at that now and just shudder. I see the photos of, you know, the, the bearded lady and the guy with alligator skin and, you know, girly reviews and little people on parade. I mean, oh, you know, just shudder when you think that people were paying to see all this. 
Yeah, that makes it seem like more of a circus, doesn't it, than an actual, oh. like a fair. Uh, some of the other fun stuff, though, I noticed, too, you must have found been able to find a lot of pictures about this one, and this was the, the parade that we used to have. I, I vividly remember the Peony Parade. Yeah, it went right, went for 60 years, right up until 1995. And uh, that, that was um, quite amazing, right down Granville Street and Hastings. I remember that, too, going back in probably in the late 80s and, and 90s. It was a massive, massive affair. And, uh, you know, I was looking at one of the photos that, that I posted on social media, and it was 1938 parade. And you've got this very futuristic-looking rocket ship being towed by a tractor. And it was um, put out by the sheet metal workers. And they, they actually won the, the grand prize for that year. And then it went out to the airport. And now a replica of that rocket's uh, near Cambian 6 near the bridge. So I just thought that was really interesting to kind of trace its origins and find out where it went. Absolutely. And of course, the PE Prize Home. As I mentioned, 88 years they have been giving away a prize home at the PE. They've been doing that, but you've actually tracked down some pictures of some of these early prize homes. It wasn't easy. The PE, strangely enough, don't keep an archive. So, uh, you know, for the last few years I've been saying, hey, does anyone know where these, you know, houses turned out? And we've found some. Well, we found the original one from 1934, which is literally around the corner from the PNE. It's on Dunder Street. And it's still there. And really? It was, yeah. It's uh, 2812 Dunder Street, if anyone's going past it. And um, it, it was worth $5,000 back in 1934, which, of course, was the middle of the Depression. But there was this great story. It was won by this 27-year-old guy called Leonard Freewin. And he was desperately wanting to marry his girlfriend, Edith. He was a delivery driver, though, and it was a depression, and he couldn't afford to do it. So he won the house, and it changed all that, and he married his sweetheart. Eve, that is the most lovely story. That's like Isn't that gorgeous. Yes, the Peony Prize Home changed somebody's life. I love that. There's always I always hear from people, or I, I, I you know, anecdotally, urban myth that oh, there were some Peony Prize Homes over here. There were some in Burnaby. There were some. So, is there no way to track down whether a house is actually a Peony Prize Home? Uh, there, not not officially. Uh, I've got sort of unofficial lists. There's a couple in Burnaby. There's one still on Lowheed. And um, I put up a post on that one. It, it's, you know, one of the interesting things is that they were so modest back then, you know, sort of thousand yes. square feet and, and just really nice looking sort of little bungalows and, and things like that. And even, you know, I was talking about this Dundas Street house, it's still there, you know, $5,000 and 34. It's currently assessed at, assessed at $1.8 million. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> Oh, my goodness. No wonder we're all entering, you know, lotteries for prize homes and things like that. But you know what, Eve? I love it. You've told us some great stories this morning. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Always a great time coming on. Thank you, Simi. That's Eve Lazarus. She's a historian, local historian, reporter, author. She's the host of Cold Case Canada. You should check out her blog, too. Eve Lazarus with the great... She's got old pictures on there of stuff that you probably remember vaguely from your childhood at the PNE, and definitely comes back to life on that one. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com.